everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security Confidential. We are back here with Rob Odin. Uh, for those of you that might have missed part one, please go back. Uh, we'll put a link in the show and you can go back and listen to him. He had some great advice on uh, transitioning into cybersecurity. But th now we're going to actually talk about cybersecurity. And for those of, that, of you that may not remember, Rob is an Air Force veteran and a cybersecurity architect with over 16 years of experience. He's a very talented individual. He's got a ton of experience on evaluating, defining, advocating, and driving adoption of policies, programs, strategies, and technologies that advance cybersecurity. Uh, welcome back to the show, Rob. Thank you for coming back. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, the last uh, show, I I think it's going to be great for for anyone that's looking to transition. You had some great advice, and now maybe perhaps you can give us some advice uh, in the actual as a practitioner uh, in the areas of cybersecurity. And there's so many questions I have for someone like you, and. and some of them, if uh, if I ask something that you can't answer that presents a security thing, you could say, you know, I can't talk about that. That's that's I'm good with that. No um, <laughs> But having been in the Air Force and, and you uh, you're an you're an expert in compliance as well. Um, one question that comes to mind is why does compliance not correlate to being good with cybersecurity. You see some of the firms that have been uh, penetrated or uh, have been breached, uh, whether that was Yahoo with 3 billion records stolen or Equifax, or we had JP Morgan Chase. I mean, these firms, if you look at the check box of compliances, they would have been check, 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 uh, you know, yeah. whether it was SOC 2, Type 2, PCI, you know, high trust, uh, you pick something, they probably check, 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 and yet it didn't necessarily equate to the best cyber defense. What well, are your thoughts or insights around that? So a couple things with that. One, I think it's incentive models, right? When you are building a purely governance risk and compliance program that says you have to meet this requirement, um, you're not doing it to address risk. You're not modifying it to your environment. You're looking at how do you meet this requirement to do business in a certain space at the lowest cost possible. When I used to run assessments for cybersecurity programs for the US government, and I remember a executive told me, what is the, uh, what is the minimum level, or what is the minimum acceptable level of non-compliance I can meet? Right, of like he's just like, look, I I'm not gonna be able to do all of this. So where's that line that I don't have to do this? And again, it wasn't uh, that they wanted to just expose the information, but the if it's a compliance program driven specifically, you're trying to check the boxes. It's to pass the test. It's kind of like when you were studying for a test versus trying to attain the knowledge. It's not about actually taking the knowledge and applying it. It's about I have a test. And I'm going to be measured on that test, not actually how effective I actually know the information. So I think one, that's the first thing. Two is for a long time, a lot of the practitioners of cybersecurity and the teams leading the compliance effort were very different. 
because it, it does there is a skill set i, I want to be very clear i'm not i don't think grc members or you know don't bring value to the team they do they bring a ton of value but if you're more focused on policies uh regulations um how to show collect artifacts and present that to an auditor that's not the same skill set as someone who is building a vulnerability management program it's not still the same skill set as someone who is responding as an analyst or an investigator from a, an event um, and if your program is just checkbox then you just you're focusing on the collection you're not focusing on trends and patterns of looking at hey we are exposed and we are getting attacked or we are looking for things that isn't explicitly told for us to look and i think those are a couple of like the primary reasons of why one compliance itself has a bad rap for cybersecurity professionals um, and from the industry as a whole but if i can add on that there is yes. something i think there might be some hope okay um, if we look at the cybersecurity framework that nist and i believe deloitte did a partnership for creating uh, that's been widely adopted uh, and I think when you're going to see with the CMMC uh, for DOD, there isn't a, do you meet it, do you not? Um, I like them for the CSF was you get to pick, you know, like how mature of a program do you want to be? Because not everybody needs to be the most mature. You don't need to be a level five, right? If the confidentiality right. of the information is sensitive but not extreme there's an acceptable level of risk that you can take on for less sensitive information if the integrity of that information is temporary in nature then maybe you don't need to have a uh, a global registry such as blockchain to you know enforce the integrity right. um if you're not amazon where being down for a minute is costing you a million dollars then you don't need the availability of the five knots and so you can uh, a framework and a compliance model such as CSF is really well because you as a organization can say, how do I want to build my program or what kind of program do I have and where do I want to go to? And I think the CMMC that kind of took concepts of the CSF as well as the NIST 171 can be applied to that. And if they do it right, then you have the promise of compliance, which is you raise all the boats, right? And you make having good cybersecurity hygiene as a built-in cost that everyone shares, then we all benefit. Um, but if compliance is a check mark that is cannibalizing funds from real cybersecurity, just because you have a regula uh, regulatory agency that just says, well, this is just what it says, then you can have issues for actually in negatively impacting cybersecurity or giving a false sense of confidence that you actually have a solid cybersecurity program. You know, um, a couple comments on that. We had James Azar on the show yep. and James uh, actually said the same thing. James, Paraphrase. It, it, we, we are in complete agreement with that. Um, and, and we've actually talked about that before ourselves. Uh, and no, I, 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 we're, we're on point. It's, there's going to be some learning curves. There's going to be some growing pains. Uh, but I honestly believe if we had a standard that could be applied, you know, that everyone can agree upon, right? ISO 27001 is a good start. It's, it's your program, but you're, you're focusing on, okay, do you have the minimum hygiene of just having a program? Uh, in 27,002 is a little bit more prescriptive on how they implement it, but it didn't give the flexibility of, well, if you're 
a mom and pop shop building, you know, thumbnails, your cybersecurity program doesn't have to be the same as an aerospace and defense contractor, you know, building, you know, missiles for the government. Like it's, you're just different. And even internally to the organizations, which is where CSF even other outshines is that you can have a, you can have layers within, Hey, my company as a whole, I want a level three, but these really sensitive elements, whether it's where my payment processing is, whether you're a parlor and it's your, the post that might get your, uh, users in trouble. Um, well, it's too late. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you, you can say maybe that's a level five and then everything else is a minimum of a level three, but you can have a risk-based approach to where you apply cybersecurity and as a supply chain, you can give a level of confidence to um, either if you're doing a B2B or you're in someone's uh, business supply chain, you say, look, I'm, this is what I'm needing, how I'm doing it. And you can have a more, we, we, can, we can agree upon the lexicon of when we say something is secure, what does that actually mean? And is it quanti- uh, quantifiable, right? So, Which, you know, so let me go please. to my second comment with that then. Do you think uh, the accounting firms are going to actually allow this to happen? So auditing is a ginormous, ginormous business, right? Uh, we went through our SOC 2 audit, and I can tell you it's not cheap. No. That is an expensive. You go SOC 2 type 1, SOC 2 type 2, those are accounting standards. You're going to pay for that. The approach you're advocating for, I would imagine, kind of hurts the revenue channel uh, a little bit for those folks, and um, will con- will our laws go along with it? Right? I mean, will well, so- I see that as a huge hurdle? Right? I mean, you look at a lot of these companies have established certain protocols and re- check boxes, regardless of whether it reduces risk or not. They just have them. Yeah. So, are they going to change? So, one. Which of the big four doesn't have a huge investment in a cybersecurity consulting or advisory uh, practice, right? They all do. All of them do. All of them. And then all of them. So so I don't think I I would be shocked at the big four, and I don't know this, um, doesn't have some type of plan for, you know, CMMC audits or advisory services. Um, Also, there's industry focus, right? I think your your regulatory or your those of us who are publicly traded, right? There's there's different groups. Now, I would love to see that as a holistic view, but the purpose and incentives of those different programs are for different reasons, right? There is a a general good hygiene. Uh, now, for my background and my specialty, I primarily focus in data protection, insider threat. Okay. Uh, there's a VIN kind of overground, but from a hygiene of just how do we uh, identify, segment, segregate, and protect regulated and sensitive data, that's going to be, excuse my Southern colloquialisms, a come to Jesus conversation that we all have to have. Because we have vendors who've kind of led, and nothing against it, right, but says just encrypt it. It doesn't matter. That's right. Until quantum, you know, computing comes in and encryption, but that's a, that's a larger problem that we all have to face. Um, but 
Okay, what do you encrypt? Do you encrypt everything? Do you do you do you isolate? Yeah, it? now you know I'm going to step in on this. There's a lot about this. Now you're getting to something that I do know something about because I've spent a lot of time with mathematics. So by training, I'm an aerospace guy, and and looking at, uh, I don't know if people understand how cyber encrypt, uh, how the RSA algorithm works, and and how it's set up to, but how you encrypt that data. Is going to ha if you go by the NIST approach, you may already be giving away some of the keys to certain parties to be able to unlock that information. So it's I, well, but but so much I said of, it. <laughs> so much of our cybersecurity is relying on encryption. The you know how we share information that the confidentiality, which has been you know the CIA triad, the confidentiality, availability, right. and integrity. Integrity, yep. Confidentiality has been first and foremost. And almost like the first among equals, right, uh, of cybersecurity. And we protect confidentiality not by perimeter or ownership, but by through encryption because we are but, so interconnected of a world. But you remember, with, I think it was it the Office of Management and Budget um, that let all the forms go on our people. They ended all ended up so in OMB. China. We're, yeah. You know what's sad about that, though? But how did that happen then? I mean, you would think those guys <laughs> – well, so, so it was sad with that, right? Okay, uh, encryption's fine until people get the keys. So <laughs> encryption's only fine. Like if, 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 I, if I compromise your network and you're encrypting everything, but then I have I create an account that has access, if you're doing an encryption management and I, now I have access to all those keys, great. You just package my meal for me. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to change it or what have you. Um, I mean, I mean uh, – uh, ransomware, right? I bring my right. own keys. You can have encrypted. Great, I'm gonna encrypt it as well. Um, OMB was actually really interesting because I felt like looking at the after action report, they found out they were compromised because the organization was starting to implement good cybersecurity practices. They were looking at their stuff. They were trying to be compliant, and I felt like the CIO and the the CISO for that. I unfairly got railroaded when they were actually looking to him. Now, again, the comment section might tear me up on this one. But I think if you look at it, right, they kind of like a FireEye. FireEye came out and said, hey, we were compromised and was open and told everybody. And if they didn't do that, we probably would not know about SolarWinds right now. We would You're not absolutely know about right. But they were doing like, look, they got us. But here's all the steps we're doing in from there. Um Encryption. And on that one, actually, if I could just no, briefly please. interject, I, I want everyone to know, um, and this is actually a question that I'm going to ask you later on, so think about the, the answer to it is, are we too focused on technologies in cybersecurity? Because SolarWinds would not, it's not the domain of technology. There was no technology vendor, no program that could have been implemented that would have stopped that damn thing. The only way we found out about it was human consciousness. Real humans who had a hunch. Somebody, you know, it was an intern that gave away uh, a password or they were reusing a simple password. And then they got an MFA request to reset their password that they never requested. And that tipped off red team saying, wait a minute, how the hell did this happen? So so I, the, the intern issue was the symptom. That was not the, I, again, I, I'm not... Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. So I, I look at that, especially like that, that disappointed me from a leadership perspective on 
it, it, the the language, and again, this is Rob Odin's personal opinion, not reflecting sure. any of the professional organizations that I uh, support or rep, uh, represent. But I thought that was a failure in leadership on, hey, uh, well, actually, it was this intern. No, the, the fact that an intern was able to do that, have that level of compromise because of systematic processes that were put into place, not verified or, you know, a good cybersecurity hygiene is the reason why you got compromised. Th this intern was just an avenue for that. I, I think that is, was an unfair, like instead of saying, hey, very unfair, we, we did this because they did that to themselves. And then it's like, it's like that meme where the guy like takes the stick and puts it in the bike and he trips and he's like, ah, Antifa. Oh. Um, <laughs> like, oh, sorry. Yes. Okay. But if it wasn't that intern, it'd be somebody else. Right. And that, we may it, not have ever found it. Yeah. And so, but all that being said, um, I completely agree. I'm a technologist. I love technology. I think technology, you know, is going to do so much. We, we're see, barely scratching the surface what it is. But technology is merely a set of processes of stuff we were already doing in the real world, right? right. Um, if I come to a problem, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not a technology problem. It's people processes and scope. You know, so we talk so much about PPT, right? People right. process technology. We don't focus on the scope of like what we should be focusing on, what, you know, how we should be doing something. But technology is an augmentation to our processes. Even when we say automation, right, which is a set of processes and the, the output of those processes, whether there are people taking it, the best we're going to do is understanding what our processes, why we're doing it. The people involved, whether they have to do the input or output or do some type of decision making, and then the technology to augment how those decisions are made. Even from analyst, you can't just buy a tool that says, boom, here's your hacker, or here's your spy. Right. And this is a problem we see in insider threat community is that there's this, uh, there's this desire to have this tool that goes, bing, spy. It's exactly. not exactly. The best we can do is have our technology augment the processes where we say, hey, this is good, this is bad, and our analysts to say, well, this looks suspicious. Can I give them the information in a way that they can be effective and efficient with as quickly as possible from the moment the event happened to the moment it's collected to the moment it's alerted, all those are time measures, and to the moment that it, the individual responds to it. Technology helps me shrink that. It doesn't help me get rid of it. And I think... Mm. Sorry, that's my soapbox because I'm a technologist. I love it, but if we're starting with technology as the first conversation, we've already we've already broken. We have. Unfortunately, to uh, that there's it's prevalent in our industry. Oh, I, absolutely. I say, it's, because it, it, who wouldn't want to just write a check to mitigate risk? We all want to do that. Yeah. Well, you think about it. Look at after the Solar Winds attack, how many vendors have been using that as a part of their marketing engine? Oh, right? also, if any vendors watching this. Please stop using FUD. Please, <laughs> love of God. If you are dealing with someone who actually does this, we know we've looked into the abyss and it has looked back to us, right? We know the, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt of, you know, just whatever it is. Please stop using that. Your product did not cure cancer yesterday because now this thing happened. Oh, I understand that. I understand it gets attention, but please, please begging you as a security practitioner, stop using FUD. 
like it, it worked when you had an MBA person who didn't have any IT or CISO background that was leading right. a CISO organization. Like, yeah, you're right. Let me buy this. But for the most of us, it just makes me want to go to, you know, put you in spam box. Thanks for saying that <laughs> I um, just... because I, I literally, um, we did a um, webinar with PMI Montreal this past week. Uh, for a bunch of project managers for their uh, professional development credits. And that was literally, I think, the second slide that I said, FUD, this is bad. This is why it's come to be the way it is. And I'm kind of glad that a real security architect agreed with me. It's it's, it's just, yes, we know. But (laughs) but tell me what business doesn't have FUD. Tell me what industry doesn't have risk. Tell me what industry isn't in a globally interconnected world that it's changing. Cybersecurity, yes, our speed might be happening a little bit quicker, and there's some interesting technology elements of it. But the same process is that people are getting compromised. Spear phishing, social engineering, taking advantage of doors not being locked, our patches being updated, our known vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, it's yes, the the technological flavor of the day might be different. But how, you don't know what I have actually built inside my, uh, my system. So to just try to say, you're vulnerable, and if you don't do this, how are you going to talk to your board about, you know, that you missed this opportunity to fix this problem? Unless I paid you stupid amounts of money to do an in-depth deep dive of my entire cybersecurity program to have me a bulletize, here's where I'm felt, you don't know. So FUD is useless. You know, um, you actually uh, bring up another point. And so this, the U.S. Air Force did a study way back, not way back when, but it, uh, and they came up with this term that they called the prevention paradox, and it's not talked about a lot. But at the fundamental level, what they're saying is the more you concentrate on prevention, the more unsecure you become. You have to, and if you look at the NIST framework, which is prescriptive for both prevention and detection and response, you got to do both and you need to separate them. So one thing that I'd like to put out as a message, and I don't know if you'll agree or disagree with me on this, but you have to separate those two functions. Your endpoint prevention, as an example, should not be the same as your EDR because now someone is going to, if the, if I know how you're preventing things, then I know how to compromise your defenses. It's the old molten castle, right? I mean, if I know how to get around the moat and the castle now, and that's all you got. <laughs> well, so I, I would completely agree with that. Now, I'm, I'm an architect and I focus like in my organization, right? We have a directorate of architecture and engineering, which is all of our security tools and how we harden and what we're looking for. Then we have a team that's our threat mitigation team. And they're the ones who are looking for, they're, they're, they're monitoring all the traffic coming in and out, they're doing the incident response, malware reverse. That's different teams. It's different skill sets, it's different focuses. Um, even from the technology that we use is different. Um, because I agree. Now, I like defense in depth as the next person does the water filtration event, right? Where we right. go and say, hey, I'm gonna do all these different things and I'm gonna try to just completely shrink everything that I possibly can from getting in but eventually somebody's going to get in. That's right. And my focus should absolutely be prevention 100% as much as I can, except even with as a, a, an architect engineer, I have a business. 
I have to let stuff go out. I have to accept a certain minimum level of uh, risk because there's going to be exceptions. There's going to be risky behaviors, but it's going to be beneficial to us as an organization to participate in that beneficial. If not, I just shut off the internet, cut off all the power. Okay, the information's secured. It's locked. But my peers... You just killed availability in the CIA trial. Uh, yeah. But... <laughs> um, and then my peers are focusing on, and, and I have an architect peer who focuses on the detection and the response element of it. And anything that I do, he's also looking and says, well, how is this? You know, And so I absolutely agree. I think as an organization, because then there's a false sense of security of being like, I have these huge walls. No one's going to get through them. That's exactly right. So you need to have and being like, who is that paranoid person on your team? Uh, that's the person you should be having over your response. And then it's like, they're in. I just, I don't know where, but I know they're in. It's going to find it. Um, and then, you know, you can, you can match that up, kind of go back. What we talked about before is the compliance team, right? What's your policies and procedures that you as an organization is how the behavior that you want your employees to interact with. What is the lanes in a row that you told them to? How do you confirm to your partners and to your outside regulators and auditors how you meet that? Um, I think you can have a nice, those three key, you know, I, I feel it's kind of like your three-legged stool of a good cybersecurity program. And you can have other elements to that as well. But I think you need, you need someone who's focusing on defense, absolutely. But that's a focus, not the focus. Exactly. And, and they should be segregated. And that's the thing. Yeah. Like you have a peer, you have somebody else that, that is who's looking at that. Me. Who's, yeah. Yeah, who's challenging you. And that's because um, I know, uh, again, I'm going to probably upset some vendors, but there's some vendors out there saying, well, yeah, well, you guys should be engaging in vendor consolidation. And you know what? We can do this from soup to nuts. And okay. But then now I'm set up with the prevention paradox. I'm right there. You so just created a gap that I, and I don't even know what gap you've created. So there's, there's always the desire, right? Uh, because I want the one throat to choke, right? If things are broken, I want to go to one vendor and be like, you make this right. That's and right. there is this, this desire to saying, okay, if you're a vendor and you have from the moment it comes in to the moment it's being monitored to the moment you're creating my DOP rules or, and then communicates to my firewalls and has my database server. And I'm also able to feed all that data into a, uh, an aggregator or SIM. And I'm having to monitor that. Hey, yeah, that's awesome. And there's some times where there's part of the information flow, which is really good to have one vendor have the different components because that integration, that handoff is really critically important. Um, but this might take off a little bit vendors, um, more often than not, there is always an overpromise of how integrated you are with, if you have multiple products, um, there's always an overpromise on how actually integrated your product is sure. with the different elements. It, it makes sense. They're, they're for different purposes. And if you have a tool that is trying to do everything, then most likely you can do everything mediocre but not something really good. And maybe for someone's mission case where I'm like, look, I just need a 70% solution to do all these things, that works for that organization. But if you're an organization that says, actually, this type of this type of sensitivity data is really critical to me. I can't rely 
I have to, that's that 20% that you don't meet is actually critical for me. So no, I, I think there's, it's, it's desirable, obviously from a cost and manageability and scalability to have something that you can deploy. But if there is interacting with users or interacting with business processes and I might want to go with the tool that's specifically built or more built towards that specific area than try to have one that just tries to, you know, is the Swiss knife, uh, the Swiss army knife of it. But again, it depends on the situation. So, so Rob, let me, let, let's upset some politicians then as well, since we're, we've picked on vendors a little bit here. Let, let's pick on politicians because post the solar winds breach, we saw, I've seen a lot of congressmen and senators come on and they're, they've been talking about, you know, we should have these laws in effect, these things in effect. Uh, no one said anything that as a cybersecurity professional made to me said, oh yeah, this is a great idea. From a policy position, do you have anything that you think as a nation we should implement that addresses the very tip of that pyramid of pain, right? Because that is not the domain of a vendor. It's the domain. <laughs> so, uh, and that's what this solar winds thing was. So as a professional, is there, have you any idea, ideations around that? Any things that we should be doing, uh, whether by policy laws, something that addresses that very top portion. So, I covered this a little bit in um, the CMMC, right? We, we talked about saying, now I think one, it's a little bit immature for having that as like I said, I am concerned if we said everyone shall meet, have a cybersecurity, right? Because if you're a tag, ta uh, excuse me, a mom and pop shop that's selling bait, you don't need, uh, you know, an MSSP running your, your system, right? But, um, I'm more of a federalist versus, uh, you know, a libertarian or, or someone who more for local state controls. Um, I think there's things we could do at the federal level that could provide support for states and local municipalities, specifically with creating an environment in which those organizations can move their, uh, their applications or services that they give. And you're almost a cloud provider for these organizations and you can consolidate cybersecurity professionals because my local municipality isn't going to be able to afford someone like me. Um, right. Or, you know, they just, they just can't dedicate that. Even the state right. have an issue with that. Um, talents. So if we could do something that could consolidate information, but yet at the same time provide a comprehensive, the detection response uh, protection, uh, all of that, um, I think that would move the needle and it could allow organizations to adopt in, right? And so instead of saying thou shall at the federal government, you have the, the cyber sizer, uh, the city, the cyber sizer, um, the organization who, you know, the individual who's going to be like, this is the, the lead CISO for all of America. Right. He has no teeth. He has no regulatory ability to make anyone do anything. It's an unfunded mandate that has no repercussions. I would hate that job because you're going to get blamed for everything and have no actual authority or ability to make changes. If we did something that we said, look, 
let us create a federal state partnership and you can even do a private industry, which is why I think the CSF was so successful because it was a public private partnership. Um, create a space which we can move these sensitive type of uh, data sets or concerns of saying, hey, uh, unemployment benefits, what have you, uh, and start giving that. We, we can consolidate cybersecurity professionals as well as have an environment that says, hey, now that also adds a additional risk is because you put all your eggs in one basket and then you have, right. you know, that's eventually going to get compromised. So how do you minimize and mitigate any damage when someone gets in? Um, policies as a whole, uh, like I said, I think the adoption of CMMC, I think over the next few years, I think that's going to have a huge impact because it is focused on supply chain, not just as you as an individual. So I think that's going to have lingering effects and spread across multiple industries. Um, and in just having a comprehensive but agreed upon policy for privacy. Because right now we're gonna have 50 different solutions as more and more states come up, which says like California and uh, New York has published, I think Virginia. So you think GDPR out. from that respect is a good thing? <sighs> Here's the problem. If you're if you're a multinational if you're a company that's in multiple states, now you have to meet multiple different privacy concerns. Maybe there's a yeah. baseline that we can do says, hey, here's the 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 template for the entire states. Um, but that's going to be a multi-year conversation. But I do think we have the issue is that we have, if we have 50 different regulations we have to meet for privacy, um, it work. It, it's, it's going to be very hard and very difficult. And are we really actually providing protections to our citizens if we do something that's spread across the uh, interstate boundaries? Um, th so those are the main things. Having an environment in which could be secure, that we can open up to states and municipalities that need that environment in the support. Um, Having the adoption of the CMMC, again, well, it needs a lot of work, but it has potential. Um, and having some type of legislative that puts some bounds of what we say as, as a, the 330, 340 million Americans of where we say privacy and what's that minimum level, almost bill of rights, if you will, for our internet identities. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of mud throwing and uh, you know, growth pains before we can get to any of those. Also, sure. the only thing I would I would beg from a policy standpoint is no knee jerk reactions, because that's entire, a big ask. Yeah, if we just do something that's an executive order or something along that lines, that doesn't is an unfunded mandate or changes something significantly without being well thought out or applied or it's is monolithic. Uh, I believe that would do more harm than it would do good. So. I mean, do you think uh, companies are under now are, are understanding that cybersecurity is a business problem and not an IT problem? Depends on the organization. Depends on the industry. I think uh, banking understands it. I mean, banking can detect fraud. Like their algorithms and analytics that they have from a, especially the credit card companies, right? Um, but how many CISOs? Or an actual C level, or your actual VP for for organizations, right? Um, there, uh, there's a mentor of mine um, that publishes uh, a, a monthly kind of a list about how many of the you know the top Fortune 100 actually has a named individual for information security. Um, does that how how do we have that conversation as a company? Right now, it's um, 
depending on where you are as an organization, as a company, um, cybersecurity would, would just tank you. If you did an actual comprehensive cybersecurity program, you would never get off the ground. Right. Or it would, it would just use too much of a call center. Um, I think people are starting to have the conversation, but as we as cybersecurity professionals, we've been more focusing on the technology and the vectors of attack and right. not changing how we communicate to our business partners. I'm finishing an MBA, so I apologize if I'm starting to do the business speak, but, but there was an accurate um, and legitimate thing. If, if we can't communicate as security professionals to the rest of the business of why this is important, we're the reason it's failing because we're supposed to be the SMEs, we're supposed to be the experts. Um, you know, there's no education like screwing up. So companies that had a really bad cyber event, right? right they're like, oh, they, they found religion. And, you know, now they start building. But again, if we can't communicate, it, you'll just spend a lot of money. You'll implement a program that some consulting firm says go and do. But unless you're able to communicate, how does that actually uh, impact, help, tie into the other risk and the other operations of the business, they're going to find themselves in the same place in three to five years because there's not, it's not inherent to the organization. So I think we're becoming more aware that cyber is a thing and most boards do ask for an update, but I think we still have a little bit of ways to go before the business in cyber, kind of like what we've had uh, 10 to 15 years ago with it. Right. Right. Most CIOs report to to either the COO or the CEO, because you can't live in this world without having, how is IT actually integral to your business? And you know, so yeah, one of the Scott. things, we've been kind of advocates for the office of the CISO ourselves, because we think partly you get her out of IT, because they're being asked to critique uh, the very people that they work for. And that is not a good thing. Yeah. It's, there, there's definitely some inherent conflicts of interest with because as a CIO, a CIO organization, it's I have to have the most, the highest uptime with the most capabilities and the lowest cost. Security is not in there now. But security might be a sub bullet, but that's for most CIO organizations. That's that's what they need to do, right? For a a, a CISO organization, we do have the CIA Charlie, right? I, I need to provide confidentiality to that information to the brokerage level. Right. I need to ensure the integrity of information is in a way that if it ever gets checked or challenged, I can either quickly mitigate it or show that I, I can protect against it. And then the availability is that either internal or external actors cannot cut off the flow of information into appropriate areas where it needs to be whether it's ransomware attacks, whether it's DDoS, right. uh, whether it's someone dropping an entire database because, you know, they didn't get their bonus. Um, and from a cost, from availability, from a features, that isn't always one for one. And so there is that inherent conflict of interest. And I think organizations are trying to figure that out because um, there is so much technology in the CISO's office uh, that it is hard to be like, how am I going to make IT decisions, which I could as a, a CISO's office. Um, and so having that peer relationship, I think is, has been the writing on the wall. We'll just see, does it morph into that? Or do we become kind of like a legal entity where instead of us trying to go yeah. ROI of the actual, you know, purpose of cybersecurity, no one asks what's the ROI of legal. 
Right. No, never has. Yeah, well, like not getting sued, right? They're not. Now, you can have specific programs, projects have an ROI, but as cybersecurity as an organization and to identify and either qualify or quantify risk, um, you, you need to do that. But what that looks like for the organization or industry is really going to be uh, dependent on what's your risk appetite. I think going in, understanding your risk is always better than just saying, well, we're too small, so we're not going to focus on that. So how do you evaluate that risk? I, I know, you know, there's a lot of frameworks out there, uh, right? Uh, but what what are your thoughts? I know I, personally we're familiar with FAIR, um, yeah. right? Uh, it, it has its pluses. It kind of give, it gives you a continuum of risk and magnitude of loss. But how should a company, what, what are your thoughts on the quantifications of risk? How would you go about doing it? So I would ask, how does the, uh, instead of going like, here's the cookie cutter approach, my first organization, my first question is, how does the company already quantify risk? What are they looking at, right? Because if you're doing a business, right, there's an opportunity cost to spend your money on X versus Y. Right. Right. How are you already, what is the business already doing to quantify, like to, to understand risk. And what's the language that the business is using in framing up risk to the organization? They might not even use the term risk, but how are they saying, if I do this versus this, what am I exposing myself to? I think um, more mature organizations are gonna have a much more, uh, like if you're in a banking industry or heavily regulated, or uh, if your CFO holds all the power, you, then you should be a lot more quantitative on like, if I do this, I will get this or within this balance. Um, again, I, I like the CSF from a framework for how to have the conversation. But the CFS, the beauty of the CFS is it uses common English language, um, which I myself fall into the trap of getting really geeking out on words. Right. And well, it's easy to do. And we yeah. got a lot of acronyms in our industry. Yeah. So we can... it's, it's super exciting. But someone who's like, I, I, and I have my communications um uh, person is always on me like okay no bro no that's not what i'm asking come back to here and you're like oh okay um and i think we need to do better at that as just an organization is one putting in the language that the business can understand because if there's no business there's no need for us right no one needs if there's if you're not generating sensitive information or products then there's no need for a security professional which is brings um, up a question why is availability not at the forefront of the cia tri triad because if the data is not available yeah, so, so the data is Or the opposite is <laughs> we as security professionals get really excited about confidentiality, maybe a little bit on the integrity, and then availability. We're like, well, if I have enough time. But no, if I implement a process or procedure or technology that starts stopping people from doing what they need to do to make the company money, I am, in fact, doing a self-denial service to myself. That's right. I'm not meeting my own availability. And... I need to have that in that mindset. It is a balance. And that's where kind of the risk for the organization is important to understand. Um, but it does take us as security professionals, again, aspiring leaders or what have you, to understand what is the business that we're in, what is the business our industry, our company is supporting, and can we understand and, and quantify you know, what technology or the exposure technology can either enable or negatively impact. And I think that is something we just as a, we can be better instead of just saying, well, I wish, you know, wish business people took a cybersecurity course or coding course or like that's happened. 
exposure technology, right? Yeah. 20 years ago, you, most of the C-suite was just like, I hate my computer, right? Right. And now all of them have smartphones. They all have, you know, but cybersecurity is becoming more aware, but we should be able to understand and communicate to the business. And it doesn't matter what framework we use. If we can't understand how that's going to actually impact the business, then we're wasting our time. Uh, absolutely. Um, so let me ask you this, uh, going down the insider threat, <laughs> yes. how big, how big a risk is it? I, you know, I mean, is, does every organization have an Edward Snowden, which we can even debate that, you know, what did what he do was a public service or, so, or was it a crime, but still, uh, I, 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 again, you stand where you sit. Um, so I previously come into my assignment here. I supported the national insider threat task force, which was a presidential task force for the DNI and the attorney general, uh, specifically yeah. targeted to support, um, uh, the executive order 13587, which established insider threat programs for all of executive branches um, that contained or you know used uh, classified material. Um, obviously, you know, up in the air, it's a public executive order. Um, and that executive order created the task force. And that task force was to do an assessment on organizations to set up an insider threat program and then support as well as outreach um, to organizations. Now user attributed abnormal behavior right how okay. we define that yep is an issue that every single organization is going to have to deal with in one way or another okay. um that's either malicious users so someone intentionally doing something wrong uh unintentional meaning they click something they exposed they save regulated or sensitive data to their home network and that home network got compromised I can't, as a cybersecurity professional, if they did that, I can't protect his home network. That's right. That was a dumb human trip. Or there's the compromised, meaning um, you as an individual have, there's, we see this a lot in fraud, um, where there's a mob or there's an organized crime that says, hey, Rob, you've been gambling a lot, but we'll forgive that or, you know, but you need to give us access or you need to, you know, I as an individual have been compromised. That is a people problem that technology can help or augment, but it's, it has to be addressed by HR right. programmatic. So it's like all disaster recovery plans. Every organization has the potential of having an employee to be compromised, uh, unwitting, or, you know, to go malicious. Like we just, just period. We all, we all have that as, and the larger you are, statistically representation of the population, you're going to be at that, you know, a greater degree. Now, I Do you think that is bigger though than the outside threat than getting hit by ransomware from someplace X? So it's it's that old adage of your impact versus probability. Right. Right. Ex right. Like, uh, if you have a compromised IT admin, I don't give a crap that you got hit ten thousand times off, you know, and they they got an email out or blocked some machine. If an IT admin took all your sensitive data or wiped all your stuff or burned down a facility uh, or shot, if you wanted to include um, domestic or violence, right, to self and others in that, which is also considered under insider threat. Um, you know, it's, it's what's the impact and the probability of that. Now, again, every single organization, you have to profile that risk a little bit differently, but um, 
to say what's the probability, how prevalent it is, you know, take your vendor of choice. Uh, and if they're wanting to sell insider threat products or tools, it's really they might be quoting some research that shows 15 to 20%, uh, you know, numbers. Uh, but again, it, it's, you know, it's what is the impact, which you can mitigate by not pulling a solar winds and actually having uh, credentials and having a plan to minimize what people can access, right? So when I was at the task force, uh, so I was a cyber subject, uh, I was a cybersecurity subject matter expert for the, the task force. And for me, it's like, what are the tools, technologies, procedures that we can already bring to bear to help with this mission? Because a lot of times what insider threat really is, is a centralized uh, either analytics or communication between traditionally siloed organizations. So HR, IT, if you have a security function, just have them communicate. And just by having that, hey, because your greatest source of information is always, I don't care what tool you have, um, the greatest source of information is always gonna be your other employees. So having an environment where your employees can say, hey, this doesn't feel right to me, and not it being a, if you are, do you have an insider threat program or insider risk, or whatever you're gonna call it, they feel comfortable saying, this seems weird and I don't wanna witch hunt, but I do I do think this needs to be looked at. So that's just a people and process thing. That has nothing to do with technology. And then having enough information to where you can either exonerate, if there's a poison pen type situation where right. someone is trying to push down someone's name, or, oh, this is a legitimate issue. How do I minimize and mitigate the damage that they did cause or could potentially cause, right? And that's always a quasi gray area. Like how do you, in you know, a uh, minority report where you're punishing somebody for something right. they haven't actually mm -hmm. done. Um, but with all of that, right, you're all, we all have personnel and we all have people. So the insider threat program, you can, instead of it being a big brother program, you can be big mama. Right. There is an incident. There is a potentially okay. uh, negative thing from an employee, which we all have. Right. I've probably said comments to some of my peers or sure you know, that they if they reported that and that didn't have a program to actually say, well, let's look into this, see if this is legitimate or not and do it. That's confidential. So I'm not, you know, ruining my reputation in an organization. Everyone wins from there. The people, the employee and the shareholders. So how does the government or military agencies deal with this, right? Because they're insider, they're you, they are handling very critical information. Yeah. You, you need to let people do their jobs and they need to have access to that data. At the same time, um, you know, there having a, blind trust is a, can be an iffy thing. So how, so they, they, what's the it, mindset there? <laughs> so, so, so there is a balance between need to know and need to uh, need to share, right? Where mm -hmm. I want to restrict this piece of information or access to this uh, source of information to the smallest group possible. So your need to know versus I need collaboration and interconnection between multiple disparate groups to get the best view and to get a response. So whether your intelligence community, uh, DOD, or even you know some confidential information for a small business administration, right? Um, you have that balance. Now, EEO, EO13587 did set up that insider threat program uh, need to be established for anyone who deals with uh, classified information. 
Okay. Uh, and again, very public. That's that's, that's that's whole purpose of the EO. Um, and organizations who say they might deal with you know more sensitive information, they can set one up themselves. Uh, there's 26 minimum standards in that executive order that says, "Hey, thou shalt do this." And again, a lot of it is not nothing like net new. It's if you're going to collect this information, you need to share, you need to communicate, you need to have someone who's responsible for these issues. You need to have a process in which you are looking into uh, potential information from the disparate sources of information from IT, HR, uh, legal. You have a process to protect your employees, right? Even the federal government says, like, look, privacy and civil liberties need to have the same weight as the other groups. And that's intentionally there. I know that sounds weird because it was in response, not to Snowden, but response to Eli Manning or uh, Private Manning to, you know, that. Um, and uh, that is the, the point. Th those 26 minimum standards was like, here's your framework. Now, uh, on the, the NIDIS force, which is part of the NCSC, uh, you can look Google up on there. Mm. They have, uh, you know, guides for being effective and efficient to have an insider threat program and they've also just published um a guide kind of their hey for the critical infrastructure here's information you can use as a private industry that we recommend for government entities because of how you have regulated or sensitive information um, how is that protected monitored as an insider threat for that interchange for communication as well as when does technology come into play right how do you how do you augment your process is by leveraging technology. But again, technology only comes in at the absolute end, regardless of whatever your favorite vendor of the week is going to tell yeah. you. Uh, technology should come in after you define the the people who are going to be impacted and responsible and the processes in which you're going to enforce. And most importantly, the scope and policy that you've told people they should do. And then the technology can help either speed it up or be a technical control so you can audit and ensure what you say should be doing is actually in fact being done. Why is the why behind the scope and policy that you just mentioned? Why is the what? Sorry. Why is the why? Yep. The why of the why, if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah. Why is the why of the scope and policy that people are mandated to uh, or, or mandates that happen not not explained to the general user population. And I say that because most people are reasonable. Yep. Right. Most people are. And if they understand why a certain action is being requested, they're going to be apt to follow that guideline. Whereas if you just mandate something and say, thou shall, they're like, yeah, okay, here's yeah. another. Yeah. Make edict. it so. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, and it really removes the, the number one asset, cybersecurity asset of a company is the people. And well, I, I think both of those are important, whether you're talking about data protection, where you're talking about insight threat, where you're talking about cybersecurity. Communicating your employees are your best asset. They're also your greatest risk. Right. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? Um, but they're, they're your greatest asset. Um, they will tell you. If you involve them, if you communicate with them, if you show humility, most people want to do the right thing. That's Give right. them a path to do it. Tell them why this is important. And so if you have a cybersecurity program and you're not 
having some type of relationship with your communications or having someone who has that skill, which I believe is a skill. Um, cause I, I write something and, uh, our communications lead is just like, nobody cares about <laughs> 75% of that. Let's cut this out. Um, and getting the buy-in because again, most people, they just, they want to do what's right, but it's the curse of knowledge, right? I might look at something and say, uh, we should totally do this. This is what we should do. And like, I know all the steps, but I'm assuming a lot from the average person who's just like, Hey, I'm trying to do what's right, but this seems dumb or seems, you know, extra versus like, Hey, either we have a regulatory requirement that we have to do these things because if this gets out, our approach to addressing this problem is to minimize the impact on you. So we could do this other thing, you know, so like, here's a, here's a worse option we could be doing. Um, and then just being open to feedback. And I think as, especially for a lot of us who come up as engineers, we're like, I thought of this, so yeah. it's awesome. Uh, just being open to like, this is, yeah. this kind of sucks. And you're like, oh, no, it's, it's perfectly engineered. Like this should be awesome. You should, you just don't under you, your problem is you're too dumb to understand. And as so I now, people, now you just, dumb. now you'll never implement it. Now it's yeah, dumb. Exactly. But, but that, that is an attitude that we're guilty of. And we're like, you're just, you're just stupid. Like that's, that's why you're doing this. Whereas, you know, having kind of that feedback and saying, okay, why are they doing this? Is it that I haven't educated them? Is it because there's actually a business process that I'm not aware of? that I'm breaking because I'm trying to do this thing? Uh, or is it a combination of how I'm communicating? I, I need to I need to improve. And I think I, I started my career as an IT integrator for, in the Air Force. Okay. And the first thing you do is half of it is troubleshooting problems. And I learned very quickly that if your first gut reaction is to blame the other guy or girl, nobody's going to want to work with you. Nobody's going to want to be, and more often than not, you're going to find out it's actually you that's broken. And so just by looking internally first and taking constructive photos and saying, Hey, and then going from there looking for the external, um, which is all based off of communication, right? Telling them the why, telling them all those things, make sure your message makes sense. Uh, there's actually a, a good little antidote. Um, one of uh, Napoleon's, greatest advisors that he said he had was the dumbest man he knew really and yeah he would write his orders and give it to paper and say read read this and tell me what it says and then if that person could not tell him like what was the intent of the message he would rewrite it and he would keep doing that until that person was able to tell him clearly i you know x y and z we as cybersecurity professionals, we like the gears, we like all the stuff. But if I can't communicate to where my employees can understand, thing that's not like I, I'm I'm finishing an MBA process, and I hate IT finance. I mean, I hate finance like it's a passion, and I have had nothing but respect for finance professionals uh, and our HR because I just don't know their thing. So having that understanding as as we communicate, let's take a step. Is that communication that what we're putting out there, are people actually able to understand and implement and understand and own? And if not, then we're just shooting ourselves in the foot, um, especially if we're asking a lot of our employees to do in the first place. So, you know, I, I if we took a poll today, I don't know how many companies, how many uh, 
employees would actually come back as saying they have even had a communication from their cybersecurity department other than maybe some kind of a phishing simulation or something, right? The first time your uh, employees hear from your department is when they failed a phishing test, you failed, not them. That's exactly. So hopefully people listening to this will get an ideation here and uh, make consider- like, you oh, I'm sure there, there'll be somebody trolling. I, I'm I'm certain of that, but that's okay, man. That's part of the thing. It's yeah. I'm a big boy. We can we, we <laughs> have a conversation. So let let me ask you one other thing. I know I'm I'm being conscious of our time, uh, but I I gotta ask why haven't we gotten IT hygiene right? So if you look at things like WannaCry, they were completely preventable had we patched those systems and why is it hygiene still considered such an arduous task uh, in days of old it was always well it's complicated we got twenty thousand endpoints we got to do you don't understand I, I think there's a lot of efficiencies that have been brought to the table because of technology and processes that don't you think so, we should have it right by now so there's something i was reading uh maybe it was like five years ago, about 70% of most of IT budgets are on legacy equipment. Um, Because we build dependencies and we build, um, you know, patents. So, so, so there's the legacy element of it, right? There, there's some complexity, especially when you start getting in larger organizations. When you add MMA, uh, MNAs into it, right? It's a lot of money to standardize. It's in, but it costs more money to maintain. Um, there is a there is a bit of a, an investment, right, to get everyone on a standard image, a uh, standard build, enforcing policies. Because again, where, what you usually have is not that the hygiene is just terrible. I think most organizations have a general level of hygiene. Right. If they're essentially managed. I would agree with that. Yeah. The problem is it's all the exceptions, and it you know. In in the in the government, there's all things temporary become permanent. Um, so if you have an exception because they need to do this thing, well, now now they become and they you know we we might if someone is doing a really good job, they might isolate them, they might do these extra guards and them. But then you start having a program that's just managing exceptions, and that's really hard to do. So things slip. Patch management. Okay, maybe I shot the patches, but did I validate those patches actually took or implied? Am I giving enough time to test and roll out patches that I can roll back in case I had a vulnerability? Well, maybe I had a uh, an older application for one of my business units, and so I didn't update their system. And then say, okay, your next update will get to you. But unless you do the follow back through, which takes time and resources, um, then maybe that never gets patched or never gets updated or they keep reusing the exception. So I think uh, IT hygiene, even shadow IT, man, we're not even getting into like people just doing what they want to do. Um, there's a ton of that going on. Yeah, there's a ton of that. So you have the legacy equipment that has its own issues. You have legacy applications that have dependencies on legacy uh, equipment. Um, you have the exceptions because one, everybody thinks they're super special. 
everyone's a special little snowflake. And especially if a large organization, it's a blizzard outside. Right. Okay, you're unique, you're an individual, but it's blizzard. So I have to do something at scale. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's always going to be an issue. It's kind of like there's nowhere in your house that isn't not a little bit dirty. I don't care. You can have a cleaning crew. There's always going to be some dirt. Now, the difference is that dirt actually could let in, you know, uh, bad guys in. But having that at a – this is why the cleanup and prevention, right, is good. And we should get there. We should absolutely – and we can do a lot more. I – I but agree. there's always going to be an unpatched server. There's always going to be uh, something configured wrong and allows someone escalating privileges. There's always going to be uh, an antivirus policy that's outdated. And so malware was able to get on your system and morph and, and go loud. But that's why you have detection and response. <laughs> and respond it. Because the quicker that I can detect it, be alerted on it, have a human being actually look at it, respond, and then minimize, and then mitigate. Like, I want to shrink the damage and then address that damage. Um, that takes a holistic look. Um, and here's the worst part. If you have someone who's an MSSP who's doing your cybersecurity, right? and you have a different people, either you're doing it internal for IT or a different MSSP, um, and they're not communicating, you got a big problem. You have an absolutely huge problem. They're like, well, that's not my contractually obligated to do that. Uh, and if cybersecurity is trying to tell, is under IT, and it's like, hey, y'all need to do this. And they're like, mm, I don't really have the budget to have a holistic uh, vulnerability vulnerability. You have the situation where, excuse me, vulner, uh, vulnerability management program. You have the situation like the Marines are in the Department of Navy where it's like, yeah, yeah, we know Congress gave you this amount of money, but we think this is how we should you should spend that money. Uh, not that, hey, uh, we think you should guys hit us here and here. And they're like, yeah, that's we'll take that under advisement, but we control the budget and we're going to tell you what to do. Um, now, uh, thankfully more organizations like ours is having a an honest conversation with uh, cybersecurity uh they they have open channels if you're not reporting to the ceo you should at least have a dotted line to communication to this uh the ceo as a, as a cybersecurity professional in my personal opinion um and you had to have that conversation of being like your baby's ugly <laughs> and if your boss is the one you're saying that your baby is ugly um you're probably not going to put that in a way that gets action or funding right. uh, because you might not last long. So I think that is my final thought of possibly why some of the, the hygiene is not where it should be. I know our CEO is going to love that statement <laughs> because he uses it all the time. And I tell him, don't do it, man. You can't tell people their baby's ugly. It yeah. doesn't work. It it's probably not going to go over very well. <laughs> but, but, but there's but there's a way that it's kind of like a growth opportunity. It's like it's not that you suck at public speaking, but public speaking is a fantastic growth opportunity for you. It's something that you can really spend some time and energy, and you'd be okay. Like you know, there's a way that you can have that for engineers. Hey, I I agree. Uh, <laughs> I agree. 
So we're at the hour here and you've been very generous with your time. I want to leave a little bit here. Is there something you want to plug? Are you doing any books, shows, uh, appearances, any talks, conferences that you want to let everybody know about? Rob? So unfortunately with the, uh, with COVID and not being able to go to presentations or, you know, uh, submitting an RSA paper or something along those lines, um, I have been uh, focusing on completing my MBA <laughs> that that's been about 20 hours a week to do um as well as my wife and i welcomed last year our son and so it's been in great dad life now probably mid 2021 start um you know getting a little bit more active i love these I'm, I'm very active in working groups and again if you have an industry i would definitely recommend looking for it um i'm very active in the carnegie mellon open source insider threat working group okay um phenomenal resource for any organization now they do because of the sensitivity of the topics vendors and government organizations don't have the open welcome but if you are a uh, commercial entity and you have an insider threat program either nascent or mature we do welcome kind of that partnership and then uh, i'm uh lead a couple working groups in the defense industry base uh and if you are part of the defense industry base come and join us at ndisac dot uh, org. Um, we love again if you're brand new or or just having the perspective, those things are fantastic. And then finally, uh, anyone can find me on LinkedIn. I love uh, interacting with people, sales, uh, team members, other cybersecurity professionals, new people coming into the field. Uh, it's Robert Odin. Uh, it's all together from the the in the LinkedIn, um, and I always welcome. That. But I do will warn my vendor peoples. Um, I make a connection with you and you follow it with the pitch. That's going to stop the conversation. I just, we, we, vind I know you love your product and I'm very happy for you. You keep doing that, hitting the ground, but, uh, I just, we don't have the, the bandwidth for every cold pitch. So have an interaction, you know, comment on my post or other things. Totally welcome. Uh, and I look forward to either being welcome back on uh, this podcast or, you know, the other. Well, we're going to have you back. <laughs> In fact, uh, we would uh, we'll maybe get a panel together. You know, in uh, days of old, we would uh, fly all our guests to Dublin, Ohio, and we would be in a real studio and and we would pour a glass of very nice select bourbon. And, uh, I'm, and I, again, I'm Southern, so bourbon <laughs> is uh you know four roses or oh uh, we have a collection uh we we used to do uh this is a side uh a marketing thing called whiskey and whiteboards mm -hmm. and it was basically a way to get our customers into the office and have them talk to each other and we provided a glass maybe two of some bourbons that they couldn't get on the open market that easily so they were allocated pieces so I, I, and I, now I, it's all dead because of so we yeah. got a bunch of booze in the office with nothing to do with it because COVID killed it all. And well, I, I feel like the the customer advisory boards, if you're a vendor and you're listening, those are extremely impactful, not perspective people like I don't use your product. But if I'm using your product, I'm going to have pain points with it. I don't care how great it is. And I think just having people in and then sharing and be like, oh, you had that as well or then they become your biggest advocates because if I feel like my vendor for this particular problem has made modifications, add things on the roadmap, or has 
helped me better meet the objective that I needed to meet based off of some models. Very helpful. Well, Rob, I want to thank you so much for your time and we're looking forward oh, awesome. to having well, you back. Again, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to uh, hearing uh, some of the other podcasts that you have mentioned, um, especially the one coming up next week. I think that one is going to be uh, the one from the Google. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, I will. I will absolutely. Well, we'll so have much. it posted this has on been Monday. Awesome.